Well, today we are going to the Word of God seeking wisdom. And seeking wisdom as it concerns a hotly debated subject in our nation, and that is the subject of abortion. The ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court has brought this issue to the forefront of our nation as individual states are now responsible for determining the legality of abortion. And this change in policy has created opportunities for us to speak about this issue to one another. And it should also compel us to consider, what do I believe about this? Why do I believe this? And so to adequately try to somehow cover this subject in one week, we are going to look today at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. And you might be thinking, this isn't about abortion. You are right. It is not. And that may seem weird to you, but what this passage is about is about thinking clearly about how to handle contentious moral issues, about practicing what it is we preach. And so let us come to the Word of God this morning. Let us seek His wisdom from the Word from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. James is one of the New Testament letters. It was likely one of the first of the New Testament letters that were written. It was written, uh, we believe, by the brother of Jesus, whose name was James, one of the apostles. We read about him in other places in Acts and in the New Testament. And so James is writing this to likely early Jewish Christians about how to live as God's people. And so this is James 1, verses 19 through 27. Let us hear the word of God this morning. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. Let us pray. The Holy God, we come before you today to sit under your word. To acknowledge that you, O God, are God and we are not. And that we sit to listen to you through your word, O Lord. 
and ask that you would speak truth to us. And so, God, use me in spite of my own sin, my weakness. Oh, God, please set that aside and help me to speak faithfully, expounding clearly what is in your word and applying it to us in our lives. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear, ears that are open to listening, as it says in this passage, that we would be quick to listen. And that you would open our hearts and minds that your truth might do work in us by the power of the Spirit. That we might not simply believe what you would have us to believe, but to also do what you would have us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So the big question as we look at this passage, as we think about this very touchy subject, is this. How can our actions match our convictions. And specifically in this instance, how can our actions match our pro-life convictions? And so in order for us to think through and answer that question and to proceed from where Scripture wants us to proceed, we're going to use this mirror analogy given to us in James chapter 1. And so to understand that analogy, we first need to look in the mirror. We need to see what it is we are supposed to know. What are we supposed to know so that when we leave that mirror, we have in our mind what that mirror is saying, that we would go and live accordingly, to live consistently with those beliefs. And as we go through and think about both knowing and then doing, I'm going to point out essentially four areas that we just go wrong. Four places that we are tempted with this to just head the wrong way to follow either the path of the world or the path of our own sin and how the Word helps correct us gently and brings us back. And so the first question I want us to ask ourselves concerning this subject is this. Do you know what you believe and what you don't believe? And do you know why it is you believe or do not believe those things? Again, think about the mirror. We need eyes to see the truth clearly. And in the case of abortion, do we have eyes to see the truth about what we believe on the subject? Are we clear on what we believe and why? Often the answer is no, because there are ways in which we are pulled away from truth. And the first major temptation I want to point out is that we are tempted to let our conversations on this issue devolve into angry, foolish shouting matches. Good luck if you would like to leave today and have a calm conversation about this subject with really anyone. It's going to be hard. You see it on TV where people assume the worst of their opponents in order to vilify them. You see it in the lines of protesters and counter-protesters launching verbal assaults back and forth like they are battling. You likely see it in your own conversations with family and friends where things can get frosty real quick if you have a different view on the subject. When discussion devolves in this way, it can be hard to know what what do I believe and what don't I believe. And so to avoid this temptation, let us hear what God says to us in His Word. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The Lord calls us as Christians to listen intently and respond gently. To listen intently and respond gently. 
That does not come easy to us. Again, look at the world around us. This is not what comes natural, and yet it is what Jesus would have us do and what He empowers us to do by the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, one simple way is to find the best arguments of people who think differently than you do. Rather than setting up a straw man argument with the worst of reasons so you can just knock him over real easy, rather than assuming the worst about people's motivations, we should respect that other people might have some valid points in their argument. We should respect the opinions of others as image bearers of God rather than destroying people in pursuit of our own agendas. That's what one scholar says. That in order to fight for what is right, we so often destroy people in pursuit of our own agendas. So we are not to engage in gotcha arguments. We are not to assume the worst. We are not to name call. We are to listen for and respond to the best arguments. I know that for me personally, over the last few months, I have been convicted to try to more thoughtfully consider why it is that people choose abortion. What are the circumstances that lead people to such a decision? What attitudes and motives and desires lead people that way? Often those concerns can be economic hardship, the physical hardship of pregnancy, the emotional stress of raising a child in a very difficult situation. And while I may not agree that those are valid reasons, I can appreciate and respect those factors, compassionately seeing the distress that people face with unanticipated pregnancy. And so this humble attitude of listening can help us cut through the hostile rhetoric you see on the protesting lines of shouting baby killers in one direction and enemies of women's rights in the other direction. But instead, the Lord calls us to humbly listen in order to understand. And that creates an environment where truth can be sought and actually found. But where do we look for such truth? Well, that brings us to the second way in which we can struggle and be tempted not to find the truth. And that is, we can let our minds be polluted by the wisdom of the world. That if we look for truth from the world, there is a danger that we are going to be led astray. Because the values of the world are in direct contrast to the values of God. Our world champions personal autonomy, which is a fancy way of saying, I am going to do what I want to do. That is the exact antithesis of biblical faith. I trust you, God. You know what I should do. And so listen to verse 21, what we are told to do here. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word contains saving truth, the most important truth. 
The Word leads us away from the wickedness of the world. It keeps us unstained from its filth. And I'm not trying to use that language to to create any emotional intensity. It's literally the language here in this passage. It is the language of pollution, of filth, of uncleanness. That's the, the image that verse 27 ends with keep oneself unstained from the world. That we can be tainted by worldly wisdom if we are listening to the world more than the Word of God. And so the way to avoid this temptation is to humbly listen to the good and perfect Word of God. Because the Word exposes falsehoods. It clearly speaks the truth. It is a mirror revealing the truth. And we submit ourselves to what God says is right and wrong. We see that in our Old Testament reading from Exodus 21, a law which recognizes the child in a mother's womb is a life equal to the life of any other person. In that passage and in other places in Scripture, in Old and New Testaments, we see how God upholds the value of human life, even life in the womb. That God's Word tells us the truth. It gives us the wisdom to understand how best to communicate that truth. But that does not always mean that we need to simply argue only from the Bible. We don't have to make our case only from biblical texts because all truth is God's truth, ultimately coming from Him. And so we can make a biblical case based on logic and reason as well. One such way that this can be done, and very similar to what Sarah did with the kids up here, is with what's called the sled argument. Sled, like wintertime down a hill, S-L-E-D. I've included notes in the sermon outline in the bulletin for you about that. Trying to draw comparisons between the human life in the womb and a toddler outside of the womb. That an unborn child may be significantly smaller in size than a toddler, but, I mean, toddlers are way smaller than full-grown adults. And yet they are seen the same. An unborn child may be significantly less developed than a toddler. But a toddler is significantly less developed than a full-grown adult. And we see them the same. An unborn child may be in a different environment or location than a toddler. But let me tell you, toddlers change location and environment all the time. You send them to daycare. You send them to grandma's house. You send them to your room. You send them to the kitchen table. They have all kinds of different environments and locations. They are. And we think of them the same no matter where they are located. An unborn child may significantly depend on its mother to survive, but a toddler depends on his or her parents or guardians to survive as well. In the same way a kidney dialysis patient depends on others to survive. So those comparisons, those SLED, the SLED comparisons, We don't find those in the Bible. They're not in the book of James chapter 6. But they're based on biblical truth. The truth that unborn children are image bearers of God and worthy of dignity and protection. That when a child is conceived, the child essentially becomes a living embodiment of the one flesh union. That man and woman, husband and wife, have come together and become one flesh. And here it is. Here's one new flesh in that union. The Bible clearly and unashamedly teaches that unborn children are image-bearing, living human beings of equal dignity to any one of us in this room. And so when we look in the mirror of God's Word, is that what we see? 
Do we see those truths clearly? Because this is what God wants us to look at. Look at in, in His Word. That the first step to knowing what it is you look like in the mirror is to know those things before you can go and live in accordance. And so we are called to know the truth God wants us to know. But if that's what we're called to believe as Christians, then what are we commanded to do about it? How do we take this knowledge about God's truth and let these truths shape our actions? That if we happen to have these pro-life convictions, we need to act consistently with those beliefs. As this passage says, if we only listen to the Word without doing what it tells us to do, then we are foolish. We are deceiving ourselves. If we claim to believe the Word, but we do not obey the Word, then we are hypocrites. And that's the first of two temptations that I want to address when it comes to our actions. And it's the temptation to act hypocritically. That we may proudly profess our pro-life convictions as things we find in the Bible. But if we do not act in accordance with those beliefs, we can reveal ourselves to be hypocrites. For many Christians in America over the last few decades, the only action flowing from our pro-life convictions is voting in some way or another. And let me be clear, that is something. It is not nothing. But the energy involved in that, the cost involved in that is minimal. Voting is rarely sacrificial. It is rarely messy. God calls us to a broader view of pro-life action. And so the correction to this temptation of hypocrisy is to genuinely care for those who are helpless and vulnerable. That's what we're told in verse 27. Listen to God speak in His Word. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, to be clear, that is not all there is to religion. He's saying that at a minimum, that's what there is to religion. That caring for the helpless and the vulnerable is a necessary part of true religion. How we treat the voiceless and the vulnerable matters to God. If you read through the Old Testament, one of the constant refrains you will hear is God's anger at people for taking advantage of the vulnerable and failing to help the helpless. Now, oftentimes in the Old Testament, that is done out of genuine wickedness and hatred towards other people and complete disrespect. But I imagine that it's more likely for many of us that we are guilty instead, not of wickedness, but of a, a paralyzing discernment. That we can be so busy evaluating whether or not the poor have perpetuated their own poverty to actually help them. And we can get overwhelmed by the sheer amount of need around us. Feeling like if I do anything, it's a drop in the bucket and what is that going to do? But as we look at the Word of God here this morning, I want you to notice God puts no qualifiers on widows and orphans. He doesn't make a distinction between those who are widowed and orphaned because they have foolishly sinned themselves into a bad situation and then widows and orphans over here who simply suffered some calamity outside their control. The simple fact that they are helpless and vulnerable means that they are helpless and vulnerable and deserve our care. Genuine care as the Lord commands. 
And so when it comes to this particular issue of abortion, this can mean many things. It can mean supporting local pregnancy resource centers. I've included the website address for one on the sermon outline in your bulletin. It's up near the Pittsburgh area. You can donate. You can volunteer. You can call them and simply say, hey, pastor yelled at me on Sunday. What am I supposed to do? Ask them, how can we help? It's a way to get started and ask people on the ground facing the issue, what's going on? There's high-cost ways of helping. There's low-cost ways. Certainly, a high-cost way is fostering an adoption and considering, could we be called to care for orphans in that way? Do I have a place in my heart and in my home for those who don't have a home and who don't have someone whose heart is looking out for them? That's high-cost. Proactive steps are training our boys to mature into godly men who respect women and are ready to become fathers. That's a proactive step to prevent this in the future. Now is the time for us as believers in Jesus to best care for the women and the unborn because the world is watching. The world would love nothing more than to say, look at those hypocrites. The world would love nothing more than to say, you do not help the vulnerable and helpless. You may not feel there is much that you can do to help, but God in his providence has placed you and gifted you to offer some measure of help in some way. That if true religion is helping the orphans and the widows in their affliction, then we are called to that true religion. So this one temptation of hypocrisy, we are called to genuinely help those to act on our beliefs. But a second temptation deals less with actions and more how we speak to one another. Not so much how we care for those outside, but how we, how we speak and interact with people. Because we are often going to be speaking and interacting with those who have had abortions and who have been affected by someone close to them having one. That statistically speaking, it is very likely that people in this room fall into this category. And we need to be sensitive to that fact. And I have tried very hard this week to be thinking about that in preparing my message. To be sensitive to the situations that people are in. Because there is a temptation to treat the sins of others as categorically different than your own sins. Especially when it comes to abortion. That in our attempts to strongly proclaim biblical truth, we can unknowingly alienate those who have chosen abortion in the past or who are currently overwhelmed by the prospect of pregnancy. So I think we need to consider our New Testament reading about the woman caught in adultery. The people in the crowd quickly condemned her, not just because she was guilty of adultery, but because everyone in the crowd wasn't guilty of adultery and never would be. But Jesus does not say to the crowd, you who have not committed adultery may cast the first stone. He says, you who are without sin may cast the first stone. He flattens the curve on sin. And so, yes, we may not have committed a certain sin, but we are guilty of sinful attitudes that result in different sins for which we could be condemned. And so to correct this temptation to look down on others who have sinned differently, we should identify 
some of the root attitudes that lead to abortion that in our lives have led to other sins. So what do I mean by that? Well, some of those attitudes that can lead people to choose abortion are things that lead us to choose sinning in different ways. And here's just a few examples. It's a common refrain you hear regarding abortion. It's that I should be able to do what I want with my body. I understand that. Is it really any different from I should be able to do what I want with my money, my tithe, my life? Another reason people justify abortion is that the child does not seem like a real person. It isn't there in front of you that you can see in the same way. Is that really any different from how people justify pornography because the people on the screen don't seem like real living human beings? Another reason that people can justify abortion is that it is economically advantageous because the cost of raising a child is so great. Is that attitude really any different from turning a blind eye to oppressive labor practices that are economically advantaged to consumers like us. Some people justify abortion because they're pursuing a career. Is that attitude any different from the mother or father who is day after day sacrificing a relationship with their child in pursuit of a career? Now, by making these comparisons, I do not mean to diminish the sin of abortion. I mean to show us that all sin is sinful. What I hope we see is that the desires and attitudes that can lead to one sin can lead to other sins, sins that we are far more often guilty of. And having seen that, I want us to notice what Jesus does again. He compassionately keeps the crowd from condemning her. Jesus refuses to pile on. He refuses to shame her, but he still calls her to go and to sin no more. So are we like Jesus in this way? Refusing to condemn and gently and firmly calling to sin no more with compassion? Or are we more like the self-righteous crowd ready to strike down those who sin differently from us? Can we see that we also have sins to be ashamed of? Can we see that we have plenty of sins that we wish we could simply undo? See, the truth is we have all sinned in ways that have brought about consequences we wish we could undo. Many of us have been sinned against in ways so that we have suffered in ways that we wish we could undo. And if each of us right here today were given a time machine that worked and had no complications, and we could go back and change our actions or the actions of others, each and every one of us in this room would have no shortage of times that we would want to go to. I wish I could change what I did there. I wish I could change that. I wish I could go back and undo this. The false promise of abortion is that an action can be undone. That the past can be erased. It comes at a cost, a very high cost. But there's that promise to undo. But the promise to undo is not found in abortion. The high cost of an innocent life of the unborn is not enough to cover over sin. It takes a higher cost. 
a higher cost must be paid by a more innocent life, one that is freely given and not forcibly taken. It requires Jesus, the truly innocent one who gave of his own life to wipe away our sins and to set us free from the guilt and shame of our own sins, that his sacrificial death can forgive any sins, abortion or adultery, lust or laziness, gossip or greed. And knowing that our Lord seeks to free us from the guilt and shame of sin, let us not pour on guilt and shame on those who have chosen abortion and sinned in different ways. Instead, let us compassionately care for them with the love of Christ, who was able to not condemn the woman caught in adultery because he took her condemnation upon himself, just like he did for us. Let us point people to Jesus through our words and our deeds, living consistently with our beliefs as we freely give of our finances, of our time and ourselves to care for the helpless and the vulnerable, for the mothers and the children, for the widows and the orphans. For that is what God our Father calls us to do. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give thanks that you are a God who can speak truth to a confused age. That you've got a double-edged sword that both cuts and heals. That we all need to be cut to be reminded of our own sins, but also to be cut with the scalpel of a surgeon who is healing us of the cancer of guilt and shame from our sin. So God, I pray that you would help us to be humbled by our sin, to be thankful when truth is proclaimed and upheld, And God, give us hearts for the helpless and vulnerable. It can be so easy to turn a blind eye or to simply believe something without acting on it. God, help us to avoid the sins of hypocrisy and inconsistency. Help us instead to be faithful with what we believe, knowing that you strengthen us for that. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the suffering around us. And help us to see, O God, how you have prepared each and every one of us to serve and love and compassionately care for the helpless and vulnerable. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.